Welcome to the Elm City Church Podcast. As a community of people who are trying to practice the way of Jesus together, we hope that these messages inspire and equip you for the journey of faith in everyday life. This morning, uh, if you would... If you don't know, we're going to celebrate. Uh, we're going to have a baptism. Three people from our church community are going to get baptized at the end of the service and publicly declare their allegiance to Jesus through baptism. Uh, one of the reasons why we you know, combine the services together is because we wanted everyone to be able to see it. Um, this is actually the third baptism we've been able to do this summer. Uh, two of them have been at the Marriott pool, and we pulled out all the stops this week. I don't know if you saw the amazing kiddie pool that... We've already refilled with air and put more water in this morning, so if anyone sees it going down, just give me the sign, and we're just going to rush out there so we can still get them through immersion. (laughs) Um, But often, when I explain baptism and explain what it means, I I like to use the analogy of a wedding ring, Um, a wedding ring, actually. So I'd never worn a ring in my life until I got married, and I just... I don't know anyone had that experience, and it just like really bothered me, and it was kind of itchy, and it was really shiny. So on our, on our honeymoon, I'm like rubbing it against the side of the pool, trying to scuff it up. That's like, we just paid a lot of money for it. Stop. What's wrong with you? Um, but a wedding ring. A wedding ring, it's an outward, visible symbol of a marriage commitment. It's a visible symbol of a marriage commitment that two people make to each other. And when I put my wedding ring on, putting it on didn't like, magically make me married. What, a, what it did was it symbolized something that had already happened. It's a sign that points to something bigger. And I believe that when we talk about baptism, that's a helpful way to understand it. Because baptism is a symbol of, be- of the beginning of the Christian life. It represents a believer's union with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. So the reason why we practice baptism by immersion and and, and bring somebody under the water is that we believe it's a picture of going into the grave and associating with the death of Jesus and and pictures the death of your old self. So you go under the waters, associating with Jesus' death, and when we bring you out of the waters, it's associating with the resurrection of Jesus and to the newness of life that you're called into, and you're raised to a new kind of life in him. And baptisms are always a time to celebrate. If there's ever a Sunday that you want to celebrate, it's, it's, it's Baptism Sunday. And so, again, we're going all out. Justin oversold it a little bit. We use the term barbecue very loosely around here. Um, if your definition of barbecue is hot dogs, bottled water, I thought it was going to be off-brand chips, but some, we have name-brand chips. Name-brand chips and little ice cream cups, then you are in luck because we have a barbecue for you after this. I know. Um, But we celebrate really for two big reasons. And the first is that baptism publicly pictures Christ's redemptive work. It publicly celebrates the miracle of all miracles, that our sins have been atoned for and that forgiveness is possible through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But secondly, we celebrate and we do baptism, we want to do it you know, publicly, is because it highlights a person's response of faith. So baptism is a way for a person to openly declare they're following Jesus for all to see. And I think if you've grown up in the church, especially in America, we take it for granted that you can just do that without fear. 
of any type of repercussions for, for the most part. But for many followers of Jesus over the years, you know, getting baptized was something that was dangerous. Uh, there's even st- there's still parts of the world that getting baptized is almost the equivalent of putting a death sentence on your head when you're publicly breaking from uh, so, you know, countries like Iran and Syria. It's, it's a really big deal to get baptized. Uh, I've been reading a, a book this summer called Everything Sad is Untrue. Has anybody read or heard about it? A couple? I was, actually, it was just one, but I feel better saying a couple. <laughs> Hoping someone else would be like, yeah, I read that too. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's a really well-written story about an Iranian refugee family that finds themselves in America because the mother and daughter converted to Christianity. And so they had, they had to flee for their lives, and it cost them so much. So the mom had to give up her medical practice, her social standing, her marriage, her community, her home. She had to give all that up in her country for Jesus. She had to trade a life of wealth for a life of poverty. Um, so let me just, re- I just want to read you a few lines from it because this is, this is told from the perspective of Daniel, her son, uh, when people ask, because he's in, in the story, he's just telling their story and this is one part of it, but he's, he's telling you as the reader, like if you don't understand this part of it, our family story makes no sense. So listen to what he said. He, he goes, uh, and here is the part that gets hard to believe. So Sina, my mom, read about Jesus and became a Christian too. And not just a regular one who keeps it in their pocket. She fell in love. She wanted everybody to have what she had, to be free, to realize that in other religions you have rules and codes and obligations to follow, to earn good things. But all you had to do with Jesus was believe that he was the one who died for you. And when I tell the story, this is, this is from the perspective of the kid, when I tell the story, this is the part where the grown-ups always interrupt me and say, okay, but wh- why did she convert? And so I just say what my mom says when people ask her. She looks them in the eye with the begging hope they will hear her, and she says, because it's true. It's true, and it's more valuable than $7 million in gold coins and thousands of acres of Persian countryside and the 10 years of education to get my medical degree. My mom wouldn't have made the trade otherwise. And if you believe it's true that there's a God and he wants you to believe in him and he sent his son to die for you, then it has to take over your life and it has to be worth more than everything else. And if it's not true, she made a giant mistake, but she doesn't think so. So listen to this. He said, she had all the wealth, the love of those people she helped in her clinic. They treated her like a queen, and she's poor now. People spit on her on buses. She's a refugee in places where people hate refugees. And she will tell you this, it's worth it. Jesus is better. Jesus is true. Christ has died. Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And it's true. I was reading that, and I was just like stopped in my tracks by how beautiful those words were. And this isn't, again, it's not a Christian book per se, but the writer, who's the son, he goes, he's talking to you, the reader. He's like, you have to understand this, or my story doesn't make any sense. My mom's story doesn't make any sense apart from that. And now probably almost none of us are going to have to deal with that. Um, you know, the people that are getting baptized this morning are probably not going to have to deal with anything remotely close to this but I do think the greatest honor we could ever have is if someone writes a story about our lives, they have to add in that caveat that says, yeah, but you have to understand it's not gonna make any sense how they lived apart from Jesus. 
It's like, man, that would be the greatest honor someone could ever write about it. So this morning, talking about baptism and salvation, our text is Isaiah 55, or parts of Isaiah 55, and uh, it's God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and this section is often titled, The Compassion of the Lord. So let me read the first nine verses for you, and it says this, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David." Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you did not know shall run to you, because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, neither are your ways my ways, declared the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Man, God's compassion just drips through those, those nine verses. And uh, just listen again to verses one and two, this invitation where it starts off, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without price. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which is not satisfying? I think what a beautiful picture of the gospel. You know, here Yahweh God urges people to accept and receive the blessings he has on offer that are, you see in this verse, freely provided and permanently satisfying. The grace of God and the offer of Jesus is freely provided and permanently satisfying. And this is not just talking about physical fulfillment, it's talking ultimately about spiritual fulfillment. It's talking about the satisfaction of our deepest desires and appetites. Can listen to the question. Are you thirsty? Well, there's water. Are you hungry? Come and eat. Come and enjoy the best stuff in this culture, wine and milk without price. It's all paid for. He goes, listen, diligent to me. Eat what is the, the invitation is so over, over abundance. He goes, eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I'll make an everlasting covenant with my steadfast, sure love for David. So this big, audacious claim that's being presented here is that all the best and most satisfying stuff in life is only available by God's grace. All of the best and most satisfying stuff in life is only available by God's grace. And we have a hunger that can only ultimately be satisfied by the bread of life. 
We have a thirst that ultimately needs to be quenched by living water. And all that is on offer from God and can only be received by his grace. Again, the question's asked. He goes, when you are hungry, why do you spend your money on that which isn't bread? You know, what? why do you labor for that which doesn't satisfy? Have you ever felt like you've done a lot of that? What do I spend so much time and energy and effort on these things that ultimately, even if I get them, they don't satisfy? They still leave me hungry and desiring more because deep down, we've all been given this desire to know and be known by God. You know, you might not know it's that, but deep down, we all have that desire and we can try to fill it with all sorts of things. That what all that does is highlights the hunger without giving us the satisfaction to it. You know, C.S. Lewis Uh, one of my favorite writers in Mere Christianity, he said this. He goes, creatures are not born with desire unless satisfaction for that desire exists. So a baby feels hunger. There's such a thing as food. You uh, You know, a duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. He goes, if I find in myself a desire that no experience can satisfy, the most probable explanation is... I was made for another world. And probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy us or satisfy it, but only to arouse it and to suggest the real thing. And you, you see that a lot in scriptures. They, they said, this, really, this is really pointing to that. This, what, what, what you have here or experience fulfillment and all that is, what that is, is that's really just designed to be a sign to point you to something bigger. Because you know, what does a sign do? It's very few times, unless it's really well done, someone looks at a sign, you're like, wow, look at that sign. So beautiful. Oh, I'm so glad it's there. No, it's what is the sign pointing to? Whether it's, you know, Keene, seven miles away or whatever. A sign is designed to point to something else. And Lewis, hinting on some of our desires and passions, he's saying, that's a sign, That's a little taste to point you to God and the ultimate fulfillment that he has to offer. Which really makes God's invitation even greater because he says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You know, if you don't have any money, come, buy and eat. The reason why God's grace can be offered without price is not that it doesn't cost anything or isn't costly, it's that the price has already been paid. The price has already been paid. That is why the invitations there have come buy and eat. If you don't have any money, it's all right. It's already been paid for. And, and, and built within this passage, the obvious question of, okay, this is great, but how do we obtain this? How, how do we accept this invita- invitation? And, and the passage says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Isn't that incredible that's God's posture towards sinners and runaway saints? It's not come back here and then after you do your penance and really, really, you know, earn it, you're back in. He says, no. He goes, return to the Lord that that he may have compassion on you and to our God that he might abundantly pardon. Sometimes that word's used is just talking about an overabundance, like there's just plenty 
of God's grace to go around. And in the chapter in the book Gentle and Lowly that we've been kind of using as a springboard for our messages this summer, Dane Ortland says this. He goes, God's heart of compassion confounds our intuitive predilections about how he loves to respond to his people if they would but dump in his lap the ruin and wreckage of their lives. He says, he isn't like you. God isn't like us. And that's why it says his ways are different than our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And, and, and the Lord God is just waiting to offer forgiveness and compassion and mercy for those who are willing to come to him and repent and forsake their ways. So this is good news for the wayward, for those who don't yet believe in Jesus, for those who are curious if I messed my life up so much that God, you know, I think this abundant mercy, sometimes, sometimes you give yourself too much credit. You're like, oh, I've just done so much stuff. I don't know. I'm like, it's like minor leagues compared to a lot of the stuff you read in the Bible. Like, <laughs> God is not worried about that. His, his grace is, is, anyone who comes, his grace will cover. But this passage also gives us, you know, confidence if you are a follower of Jesus. This gives confidence to the believer, and I want, I want to show you, show you why. Let's go back to that quote where people ask the kid, you know, why did you convert? Why did she convert? Was it worth it? And he said this, because she would look them in the eyes with begging hope, and they will hear her, and she'll say, because it's true. And this right here is a whole list of stuff she gave up. It's true and it's more valuable than $7 million in gold coins, thousands of acres of Persian countryside, 10 acres, and 10 years of education and to get a medical degree. Again, she had wealth, the love of all the people she helped in her clinic. She was treated like a queen. She had to give it all up. And she will tell you this, it's worth it because Jesus is better. Jesus is true. Christ has died. Christ has risen and Christ will come again. And do you believe that? If you believe that, that changes everything. So I want to draw your attention just to the last two verses of Isaiah 55 as we close, because the final two verses highlight God's ultimate redemption plan. As we, as we celebrate baptisms this morning about what, what Christ has done for the individual, Isaiah 55 also talks about the full scope of redemption. That's not just for the individual, but it's for everything. For the entire, all creation will be redeemed. And this is what it says in verse 12 and 13. For you shall go out in joy, and be led forth in peace. And the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. And this is, you know, metaphoric language talking about, you know, you see in Romans, it talks about all creation groans with anticipation because of the curse. And it says, that, you know, in the final redemption as if the, the mountains are going to celebrate, the trees are going to clap their hands. And it says, instead of the thorns, there should come up the cypress. Instead of the briar, shall come up the myrtle. And I believe this is a reference to, in Genesis, when it talks about the curse of how, you know, thorns and thistles. And it's funny, when you, re- when you read that, it's almost like when anything's going wrong at work or things are frustrating you, and you'd be like, ah. Oh. You know, the biblical way to, to, to swear, you can just say, oh, thorns and thistles, <laughs> thorns and thistles. But the good news is instead of the thorn, she'll come up the cypress. 
uh, and, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. This is, this is abundance and good things. And, and this right here, this last part is awesome. It says, and it shall make a name for the Lord and an everlasting sign shall not be cut off. And when it says it shall make a name for the Lord, it's, a, it's the idea of a monument. So in ancient times, kings and rulers, they would want to erect, you know, mon- think of like monuments or statues. Think of, you know, the great pyramids or, you know, what, some, of these, whoa, some of these other works of, of <laughs> keep your toes, uh, of ancient times. And why would they do it? They would put these monuments up so you'd look at them and remember them and kind of celebrate their great deeds and what they had done. That was the purpose. So God in this passage is saying, you know what my monument is going to be? That's going to live on forever, that people are going to see and celebrate and what, what I have done. It's not going to be something, you know, made with stone. It's not going to be something unbreathing. It's going to be a new and redeemed creation that all followers of Jesus get to be a part of. He says, that is going to be my, that is what's going to make a name and a monument for me. So when we celebrate baptism, it is, again, we are celebrating, rehearsing what Christ has done. We are celebrating someone uh, publicly declaring their allegiance to Jesus so all can see. But it also is something where we look forward, where we look ahead to the ultimate promise, that one day God will redeem all things that we will be his monument. We will be the thing that points to the greatness of our God and our, our God and our creator and his power. So yes, baptisms are a time to celebrate. Baptisms are a time to strengthen your faith and remember this, it's worth it. Jesus is better. Jesus is true. Christ has died. Christ has risen and Christ will come again. It is true. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your compassion. And when we see these promises in Isaiah 55, really from beginning to the end of your word, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and you are the same God that offers abundant mercy to those who turn to you then and you do now. And I pray if there's anyone in here this morning that has not experienced that, that's searching and is unsure, that you would just make yourself real and known to them, so that they can turn to you and repent and become your child. And for those of you in here that have been walking with you for a while, I pray this morning would strengthen our faith, remind us and embolden us that you are better, that there's nothing we can give up that is greater than what we gain. There's nothing we can give up that's gonna be greater than what's going to be restored to us tenfold when you restore and redeem all creation. So in this final song this morning and really the rest of it to help us be really a celebration of who you are and what you've done. Amen, pray, amen. We hope this message has been impactful. For more information about how you can connect with Elm City Church, visit elmcitychurch.com or follow us on social media. We'd love to help you take some next steps.